Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. So we just had an interesting couple days, uh, particularly July 1st, where all the signings went down. So I'm, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Rachel? Pretty good. I mean, I got a job, so there's that. But yeah, there's like so many signings. I decided in my infinite wisdom to go to Wonderland on July 1st for like the afternoon. July 1st is a notoriously tough day for me, so everything happened, of course. But uh, I think... We're just going to cover signings today, right? Yeah, I think we're going to do one podcast for signings and one podcast for trades, just because I think that makes it easier to break everything down, you know, that we like to dive deep into things. So to make life easier, we'll do the signings podcast today, and then we're going to do the the trades podcast over the weekend, maybe? Yeah, we'll probably do that. We'll have it out next week. Sounds good. Alrighty. So what did you want to start with? I know there were a few big ones that happened on July 1st. Um, I think first we should probably clarify the fact that the podcast isn't going anywhere. Um, my new job allows me to still record. So for everyone who tweeted at me, thank you. I really appreciate it. But Ian, you're not quite getting rid of me yet. Tried my best, but I uh, just can't do it. No. Uh, <laughs> for people who aren't aware, what is the job? I, I know that they tweeted it publicly, so it's, it's on the public record. Um, I'm the director of advanced performance for York University. Um, so kind of building out a department that encompasses sports science and analytics. Um, uh, and it's going to tie into kind of doing my own masters. So I'm pretty, pretty jacked about it. Good stuff. And now you're living downtown, like all fancy. I know, right? I'm all, all fancy and stuff. Yeah. So if you hear like fire trucks and stuff, my apartment is not on fire. It's just, you know, downtown Toronto life for you. We don't have as many fires here in Mississauga. Speaking of five alarm fire, um, we had an offer sheet, Ian. Did we, though? Did we? Does it count? If an offer sheet happens in the middle of the forest and it's below market value and results in an auto sign right away, did, did it really happen? I mean, it was exciting for the two and a half seconds that it was at least announced. It was better than nothing, right? Is it, though? I don't know. To me, it just... <sighs> If you're going to use an offer sheet, at least do it properly. It, it really bothered me more than anything. It's funny. I, I saw offer sheet and I let myself get excited for a second. And then I realized that it was in the compensation tier. That What was the compensation tier for Aho? A first, a second, and a third. They were like $800 from being the next one. I'm like, come on. You need to go higher than that. But okay, so here's a question for you. If the Habs went to 10.5 AAV and made all of that money, obviously, signing bonus money, which is what they did in the first place. Very smart on their part. Do you think Carolina matches if now there's all of a sudden an extra uh, $20 million in signing bonus money? And that's the interesting part of the question that I wish we got to see, because that would have been the smart thing to do. Because the $10.5 million tier, it's only two first-round picks, a second, and a third. So the compensation isn't great, but the money would be a lot for Carolina to handle. What's funny is that I, th- I still think they would have matched it, but I think it would have been really difficult for them to do it, and it would have led to a lot of back-and-forth decision-making. That would have been the smart way to do it, but they didn't, and they didn't even put it in the $9.5 million range or the $9 million. I, I just, I don't know. It made absolutely no sense to me. Why is Montreal doing that? At, w- at what point do you actually think you're getting the player? Here's an interesting theory. What if it's 
Jeff Molson saying, please actually go spend my money. And Mark Vergevin going, okay, I need to show the fans and Jeff Molson that I'm going to actually try. But I'm only going to make the attempt, even though I know Carolina will match, because I don't want to get sewered by the rest of the GMs. You know what I mean? It's funny. Like, that's the joke that was put out there on Twitter. That very well might have been what happened, but... I don't know. To say that an offer sheet happened, I just, I'm still not of the opinion that one actually did. So I, to me, I'm just going to say that Sebastian Ajo re-signed with Carolina for $8.45 million, whatever it ended up being. 8.425, whatever the number was. But when, when people tell me that an offer sheet happened this summer, I'm literally going to forget that one happened because this didn't feel like one that was ever in any threat of making someone not match. The Shea Weber one that was signed way back when, it was so crazy and how long-term the deal was. It made you think, man, do you actually want to sign that? But for this one, there was no incentive for the team not to sign it. So it was dumb to use that mechanism. If you're going to use an offer sheet, go for players in the $4.2 million tier where you have a good chance at getting them because the team's cap-strapped. Or offer at a higher rate, at a higher compensation tier where the team is actually incentivized to maybe take the compensation in return. But... I don't know. I just ended up more frustrated than anything when I saw that because it wasn't really an offer sheet when you think about it. Yeah, I think at least there was one, but I don't think it was like one of those legitimate, oh, this has a chance. I mean, for a moment when I saw the bonus structure, I'm like, ooh, does Carolina ownership really want to dole that out? But then I realized Tom Dundon doesn't give a flying poo what anyone thinks. He's like, yeah, I'll write that check. He literally just burned 70 million dollars on a football league that doesn't exist so i'm sure burning 21 million dollars on aho which is actually an asset with some return on investment is probably in his mind a smart business decision you know what i mean what i would call it a smart business decision was the timo meyer contract wow it's not often that i uh, you know we, we see a player signed on july 1st like in the restricted free agency date and we go, holy crap, like, wow, that was an incredible contract. I just, I really like this contract. Timo Meyer is such a good player. I don't think we talk about how good he is because of how many great players they've had in San Jose for so many years. But I feel like Timo, Timo Meyer is one of those guys who kind of slips through the cracks when you're talking about the elite players there. Just came off of a ridiculous 30-goal season, uh, almost a point-per-game player. But it's not even that. It's his ability to drive play that I love more than anything. At $6 million for the next four years, he's going to outperform that contract, I think, no problem. Oh, I don't even think... I thought it was a joke when I read it on Twitter. Like, I thought it was one of those fake Bob McKenzie accounts that tweeted it. Because I'm like, there's no way. Like, I thought this guy was a prime offer sheet target given kind of the cap situation in San Jose. And then they're out here signing him four years, $6 million. I'm like, "You, you are joking, right? How on earth? And I think you hit the nail on the head. He's so undervalued because... A, he plays in San Jose, and they play at 10.30 at night most nights, so not a whole lot of people see him. But a 30-goal score for $6 million in this league? Oh, my God. Like, that's crazy. And given the fact that they're probably going to have Patrick Marlowe, they're going to have Joe Thornton, Timo Meyer is going to have to play a more important role in terms of driving play, and he's very, very good at that. So I think in four years' time when that contract comes up, uh, that's probably a double-digit ass because this is, I don't know what you think, but hometown discount for sure in my mind. And we'll see if the, how much the cap goes up to the point where players like him might actually be earning you know, $10 million. It's funny. You're oh, double digits. No, There's no way. But if the cap's at $100 million in a few years, all of a sudden 10% of the cap, it's a realistic ask. So 
What's another contract that you really liked uh, on July 1st before we get into some of the ones that we do not care for? Um, I thought the Eunice Donskoy one was good. I mean, I know he was a healthy scratch a couple times, but I never understood why. I think he brings a lot to a team, and I, I feel like you also liked this contract if I know you well enough. It's funny. I, I'm not one to get riled up about other teams' players getting healthy scratched unless that player is Colin Miller, who's one of my favorites in the league. But Judas Johnskoy getting healthy scratched for Michael Haley is one of the crazier things that happened this season, and it happened a little bit. Like It was a crime. Like It was an actual crime. It happened in the playoffs. I think it happened twice in the regular season. I just I didn't understand what was happening. It's funny. You'll probably pull up Eunice Donsquay and Hockey DB right now. You'll say, eh, 37 points in 80 games, 32 points in 66 games the year before. Like, what's, what's so great about that? But again, the underrated factor here is how well this guy drives play. When you look at him historically over the last, let's call it, four years... He's been an elite play driver despite playing lower in the lineup. So you move this guy into your middle six, I think you can play him on a second line and he'll provide great value there, especially on a team like Colorado, who now has Nazem Kadri on their second line. They're going to have Eunice Donskoy on their second line. This is a team that went from being a one-line team to a team that all of a sudden has a surprising amount of depth. They're going to have that young blue line with Sam Gerrard, uh, Kale McCarr, Bowen Byram. Who else is... Uh, Connor Timmins going to be coming up soon. Oh, I like Connor Timmins. He's... That top four, man, holy. I love Colorado. I might actually watch them like later in the regular season. It's funny. I watch them all the time in the playoffs because Nathan McKinnon in the playoffs was must-see TV. But Colorado, late at night at 10 p.m. when I'm flipping through the channels, I'm going to give them a watch because it's not just the McKinnon show anymore. There's some depth there. The defense is young and active and dynamic and everyone can skate. And you add Eunice Donskoy and Nazem Kajra to the mix. Holy crap. I, I really like what Colorado's doing. And they still have tons of cap space. It's it's ridiculous what's going on there. I really love the way they've turned things around. Yunus Donskoy is one of those players, and I mean, we on this podcast are not proponents of only using the eye test, but Yunus Donskoy for me, where it was every single time I watch his team play, I'm like, oh my god, this guy stands out as consistently doing good things for his team. He might not score all the time, but he's the one getting the puck retrievals. He's the one winning puck battles. He's the one that's down low, defensively responsible. Like It it was unbelievable to me how many little plays he made in terms of transition, driving play, puck retrievals, creating chances, creating space that I just think don't show up in the box score. They definitely show up in other numbers, like the driving play numbers, but they do not show up in the box score. The fact that he retrieved the puck that three passes later was in the back of the net. You know what I mean? I was going to say, one player whose numbers do show up in the box score is Artemi Panarin, who I feel like we need to talk about, uh, was the the crown jewel of this free agent class, and for good reason. He's a over-point-per-game player, and it's not even that. That's that's most of his value. He's a zone entry phenom. The way that this guy j- gets the puck up the ice with possession is ridiculous. Have you seen um, CJ Turturro's chart on him? He's in the 99th percentile for, like, everything, it yep, seems. Yep. Uh, zone exits, zone entries, shot assists. This guy is one of my favorite players in the league to watch, and for good reason. And it's funny, he's not just a zone entry point producer. If you look at his 5-on-5 shot rate impacts, it's funny. Patrick Kane was never a player who drove play. He was always a guy who kind of broke even in the shot department, but you know, outscored teams because of his ridiculous playmaking ability in the offensive zone. 
when he played with Panera and all of a sudden that line was out shooting and out chancing the crap out of teams in Columbus, there would always be one line or two lines. It's funny when you do that, the Corsica, you can sort by lines and see which trio of players is doing the best. And the trio of players that would be like the best in the league. It's funny. Uh, last year, it might've been two years ago. I was sorting by the top five best in the lines in the league who played at least 200 minutes together. And Panarin was on two of them. <laughs> it was just, is like, that good? It's like, it's funny. Columbus has one of the best lines in the league that plays a bunch of time together. Oh, and then they tried another trio with Panarin. And that was also one of the best lines in the league. It's just like, this guy is a one-man line as a winger. I know that we say that, you know, centers tend to earn more than, than wingers because of their ability to impact the game. Panarin's one of the few wingers who can impact the game like a center. Much like a Kucherov, much like a Mark Stone, his impact on the game is incredible. And yeah, this makes him the highest paid winger in the NHL, but guess what? Kucherov's ridiculously underpaid. Mark Stone's ridiculously underpaid. You could give both those guys an $11.5 million contract, and I wouldn't blink once. So Panarin at $11.6 million, even though you're going to say that's steep for a winger... His ability to impact the game, I think, is well worth it. You pay for superstar talent in this league, and that's what Panarin is. And, oh my God, the Rangers are going to be one of the most fun teams to watch in the NHL next year. This is going to be awesome. I, I, I think they'll make the playoffs. I mean, can you just for a second sit back? Let's play funsies for a second. The Rangers could have a top line of Mika Zibanejad, Artemi Panarin, because let's face it, whatever line Artemi Panarin is on, that's your top line. He's never, ever on the second line. He is the top line, and potentially Capo Caco. That's so much skill. Like, the Rangers, they've rebuilt so quickly. And for me, Panarin, I mean, he's one of my favorite players to watch. I think that seven-year contracts are silly. Uh, we've talked about this, how there should be a, a limit. But when it comes to guys like Panarin, you give him a seven-year contract and you don't even think one time about it. You just do it because he turned down more money from the Islanders to play with the Rangers. So not only are you paying him likely a million dollars less than the Islanders would have had to pay him, but you know you're getting seven years of probably superstar quality play because the way that Panarin plays, he doesn't, he's not susceptible to the physicality. He's doesn't find himself in awful places. He doesn't only rely on skating, which tends to go as you get older with age curves. Yeah, much like Kucherov, he's smart, and he's able to avoid it and make the right play regardless of where he is on the ice. So, we talked about Panarin. Um, 10 by 7 for Bobrovsky? Thoughts? That makes a lot of sense if you're getting Artemi Panarin in a package deal. Otherwise, it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> I think $10 million is... A lot for a goaltender. Um, I think that seven years is a lot for a goaltender. Like, all the way around. It was a lot. It would have made a lot of sense if it was coming off of uh, 2017 18 or 2016 17, where you're going, okay, this is guy is the, the undisputed best goalie in the world. But he had, a, he had a real down year last year. And now I'm thinking, is that really a guy you want to pay going into his 30s? The cap hit is very scary the term is absolutely frightening so oh he how old is he 28 he's 30 oh he's, he's 30. 30 oh oh dear he turns 31 in september oh that's alarming yeah it's not great it's funny i i'd be willing to live with this if it meant i got panarin that's how highly i think of panarin that i'd be willing to take on a bad contract to secure a superstar for seven years like paying 20 million for both of them let's say like here's a bucket of 20 million, split it amongst 
yourselves kind of thing. Yeah, like I could, I, you could make a case where on ice value, it's funny, I always think superstars are underpaid. I think it's almost impossible to overpay a superstar. So in a true market value world, and I know that we don't live in that, but Panarin, I think you could make an argument that hey, maybe he's worth like 15 million. Uh, Bobrovsky then would then need to be worth 5 million. And I, I, you could make a case for that. So it's, it's going to be one of those deals that might look good in the next year or two, maybe three. The back half of that deal is going to be a disaster. And maybe you can put it on LTIR. Maybe you can trade half of it. I, I don't know what the plan is, but I like that the, the coaching change in Florida. I like their young talent. Uh, I guess I like that, I, that they have a good goaltender for the next year or two. But after that, ugh, it's funny. You want to build around cheap young talent. You want to build around Sasha Barkov and Aaron Ekblad, but now when they're on their second contracts, your team's going to be an unmitigated disaster. So we don't like the Bobrovsky contract. Vancouver signed Tyler Myers, Jordy Ben, Oscar Fantenberg, and then ironically, after losing out on the on the uh, Panarin sweepstakes, Anders Lee returns at seven by seven to the Islanders. Um, I'm gonna go with that. You don't like the Tyler Myers deal? Is that a pretty good guess? You know what's funny is that I feel like the $8 million rumor was floated out by Vancouver so that when they signed him to a $6 million contract, it wouldn't seem as crazy. But it's still crazy because this guy's been on a third pairing for the last however many years. But what are his stats? Like, I, I saw a bunch of things that were pretty alarming if you're paying a guy $6 million. What What does he do at a... Top three rate, I should say, because if he's a number four, okay, he's a number four. What's a number four defenseman worth in this market? Uh, three million dollars, maybe. Can you can you can you convince me four? I don't I don't think you convince me four million. I think Tyler Myers probably worth about three million dollars. So what does he do at the level that Vancouver is going to be paying him at, other than being tall? <laughs> I love it. The one stat I saw was like defensemen who make over eight million dollars, and this was when the rumor came out. It was like I think we talked Brent about this Burns last week, and, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, it was like something like that. Now he only makes six, and I saw everyone being like, "See, he only made six. I'm like, it's still bad. He doesn't really. I mean, he does have a good shot, and I mean, if I'm Vancouver, and I would likely think that Travis Green thinks this way, Quinn Hughes is running your top power play, um, which leaves Myers with a second power play. But you could have picked up P.K. Subban for free over the next three years. Or you could have picked up Colin Miller for free over the next four years. So uh, it makes zero sense to me why you'd go out and give Tyler Myers $6 million when you could have brought in a much better defenseman on, on a... Even though Subban's making more money, he's obviously a way better player. And Colin Miller is making less money and is a better player, in my opinion. So it it, I, I, it doesn't make much sense to me, but... That's going to be one that I think looks bad from day one. And by the time you get to the end of this contract, I'm not sure if he's going to be even a bottom pairing defenseman at that point. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those, I agree, day one where you're like, ooh, I don't know about that. That That's not very good. What about Anders Lee, 7x7? Seven seven? I mean, we don't get to make the joke that the Islanders captain left them two years in a row. I was really looking forward Wasn't to that. Wasn't he joke. the one screaming about Tavares and loyalty and then he's out here interviewing with like 10 different teams? Like, okay. Hey, I mean, you got to do what you can to leverage yourself into a good contract negotiation. I gotta, I'm never which gonna... he ended up getting seven by seven. So I'm happy for him. I'm, I mean, you always know, you always root for the player to, to get what they're worth. 
I think that one doesn't look so bad. In the, again, this is going to be the, the case with any unrestricted free agent that you sign to a six or seven year deal or even a five year deal. The first couple of years aren't going to look too bad. And then the back half is going to look terrible. And are you in a position where that's going to make sense for your team? Uh, the Eric Carlson signing in San Jose, I think you are in that position. You know, you're in win now mode where your aging core is in their late 30s and you want to do it, you can to win a Stanley Cup. So I understand it from the Eric Carlson perspective. The Anders Lee perspective, I don't know. You're building around Matt Barzell. You're building around some nice young talent there. I, mean, I, I think I might have just let him walk and, and see what I could have done with that cap space. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that you're going to have to sign Barzell, who will command um, a large number, I would agree. Like, I think Anders Lee will be worth the value of his contract in probably the first three years. It would be the last four that I'm concerned about. And that's the thing. When when your best player is Matt Barzell, how old is he, 22 years old? I think you need to be year- worried about years four, five, and six because those should still be contending windows when you have a superstar player in their prime. Agreed. Very much so. So he gets, we, we keep talking about, oh, the last four years of the contract or, oh, the last three years of the contract. Um, at least these are for good players. What about giving mediocre players things like six-year contracts? It's funny because everyone wants to make fun of the Tyler Myers contract or the Sergei Bobrovsky contract. But I, I still think the most inexplicable contract that was given out in free agency was the Brandon Tanev contract. Do you want to tell people what the details of that one were? Um, I think it's six years and like three and a half million, which is a lot of money and probably three times as many years as necessary. And he's a third liner? Uh, yeah, he's likely a third liner on Pittsburgh. I mean, On a cup contender, he's probably a fourth liner. Winnipeg has an insanely deep forward group. But that's what you need to be a cup contender. Right. But what I you know what I'm saying in, in terms of the fact that he got he got pushed down the lineup in the same way that um some other players on Toronto kind of got pushed down. Like Nazem Kadri is a second line center, but he was playing third line center because the Leafs happen to have Austin Matthews and John Tavares. I think Brandon Tanev is probably a, like he tops out as a third line player, and that's likely what he'll be in Pittsburgh. Um six years? And it's funny because I don't think he's worth that in year one of the contract. And it kind of reminds me of the Tyler Myers contract. I'm, like, I'm looking at this. I'm like, man, I'm not sure if I like this in the first two or three years. Imagine how bad it's going to be in years four, five, and six. Who gives a third liner a six-year contract? You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of the Detroit contracts, the, uh, the Justin Abdelkader oh contract, I think is the best comparable for me. Oh, my God. Or um, who's the fourth liner that they gave six years a term to? Luke Glendening. Mike Babcock's favorite. Danny DeKaiser and Jonathan Erickson. It's just one of those contracts where you look at it and you go, this doesn't make any sense. And the player is on the wrong side of their prime. It's just going to get worse. Dom Lushishan had a great article where he talked about how paying money in unrestricted free agency is typically a bad idea. So the more deals we talk about in this podcast, the, the more likely we are to be talking about bad deals because he, he found out that there's a, a 20% premium that you pay for guys in unrestricted free agency versus the 20% sale you get on players in, in restricted free agency under the age of 27. And that's because players typically peak between the ages of 23 and 25. They don't fall off a cliff until, you know, like their, their 30s. But you're at your best in your early to mid-20s. 
So when you hit unrestricted free agency at age 28, you're on the decline and you're a depreciating asset at that point. So the more term that you go on a depreciating asset, the more likely you are to really dislike that in the later years. And that's what we're seeing with these players. Don't give term to a third liner. Don't give term to a bottom pairing defenseman. And it's what we've seen a couple teams do on July 1st. And I have a feeling they're going to regret those in a couple of years. What about giving fourth liners four years or like giving anyone under the second line or unless it's like a young player that you're trying to to bridge and sort of get to the year just before his UFA that I can understand but if you know that all they're going to be is a fourth liner why would you give them four years especially when you know they're going to be a depreciating asset which is again this comes back to it if they're a fourth liner now what are they going to be in three years they might not be an NHL player. In fact, they probably won't be. So by the time you get to the end of these four-year deals, this was the big problem with the Matt Martin contract. Like, yeah, he's a fourth liner now, but in a couple of years, he might not even be in the league. And that's the problem with, what was his name? Garrett Hathaway? Garnet Hathaway. Garnet Hathaway. The fact that I don't even know who this guy is kind of proves my point. It's funny. It's like, you see him play, it's like, yeah, Hathaway has the puck. And I have to Google. I'm like, who's Hathaway? I'm like, oh, he's been in the league for a little bit, but... He's a fourth liner who got a, what, four-year deal at one and a half million? It's not terrible, but it's it's the term that kills you, you know? Like, yeah, maybe he's a fourth-line player, but we've seen that you can easily pick up players who can provide value on a league minimum contract. This guy's making more than double that for the next four years. It's, it's just a bad value contract. It doesn't make much sense. It's also one of those things where there's a very easy way to avoid doing this, and that's if you develop your players. If you develop your prospects properly, they should be able to come up and play fourth-line minutes when necessary until they're ready to take on a bigger role. You should not have to be signing fourth-liners to contracts. Like Your fourth-line, you should be able to plug prospects in when you need them. And I think that playing a guy like Trevor Moore, like using development to then promote to the big club kind of thing, right? But even if you're not developing your prospects properly, there are still guys like Kenny Augustino who's available on a on a league minimum contract. Tyler Ennis is available for eight hundred thousand. Corey Perry, he's one and a half million for one year. So he signed for Hathaway money but one year. And he's Corey Perry. Yeah, there you go. Um <laughs> But he's got a bunch of like performance bonuses. I was gonna say that one was interesting because he he's probably gonna earn more than that if he turns out to be Corey Perry. Okay, but would you rather have Corey Perry or Garnet Hathaway? That one goes without saying. I mean, I'd I'd rather have Kenny Augustino at seven hundred thousand. I'd rather have Tyler Ennis at eight hundred thousand. I'd I'd rather have one of these buy low players on a one year deal because I, I can't say this enough. When you're twenty eight years old or older, you're a depreciating asset. The more term you go on someone at that rate, the more risk you're you're giving yourself. So why go risky? on a fourth liner. That's not something you need to do to yourself. Just keep signing guys to league minimum contracts, to PTOs, and that's how you should fill your depth roles. That's the cheapest, most efficient way to do it. So I'm glad you you brought that up because we kind of saw a trend this year in terms of the fact that guys are signing one to two year deals. And I'm not talking like fourth liners. I'm talking guys like bona fide players who have done something in this league. The biggest example is Wayne Simmons, one year at $5 million. But we're seeing a one to two year deal kind of thing instead of these big long ones. So Simmons signed for a year, both Talbot and Laner signed for a year. Now Talbot didn't have a very good year, but Laner was excellent. So I'm kind of surprised that 
the Islanders gave Varlamov the same amount of money, but for four years, instead of just paying the guy that they had in Laner. Tyler Ennis, one year, 800000 Corey Perry, Ryan Murray, all like one year deals. And why do you think that is other than like the prove me type thing? Do you think it's a team driven thing or do you think it's the players saying like, I think I can still have one more contract after this if I prove myself kind of thing? I'm wondering if the league is getting a little bit smarter when it comes to these kind of contracts. And I mean, I I still feel like we have no idea what happened behind the scenes with the Robin Lehner situation. That feels very bizarre. I'm not sure why they would sign Varlamov to a, a multi-year deal at $5 million when you could have had Robin Lehner at the, the same amount, even if it was just for one year. Maybe it's the players betting on themselves. Maybe it's Wayne Simmons going, I knew I had a really rough year last year. If I have a strong year in the top six for New Jersey and I score some big goals in the playoffs... Maybe I earned myself a five-year deal for you know $6 million or something like that. Maybe that's what Robin Lehner's thinking. That I had such a strong year last year. Let me go play in Chicago, have another strong year, and I'll earn myself some Bobrovsky money. Maybe not all of it, but you know what I mean. That like five, six-year deal at a large cap hit. I'm not sure what it is, but when you look at the lower end of the spectrum, I just think it's the teams aren't willing to, to pay a Tyler Ennis maybe the four years. But then again, we see a, a Garnet Hathaway getting up. Would a you rather have Tyler Ennis four years at... 1.4 million or Garnet Hathaway four years 1.4 million. Well, so I, th- I think Tyler Ennis is the better player, but I, I just give me one year of term on these guys. And you I, know what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. For me, if I'm the team, I'm thinking that. But I don't understand how Tyler Ennis only signs for one year after what I thought was rehabilitating his value in Toronto. So, or did he get a two-year deal at a cheap cap hit? Ennis. Yeah, Tyler Ennis. No, one year, eight hundred thousand. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, I'm surprised he didn't get more than that. Maybe it's just the fact that he's a smaller guy and, and teams don't value that. But, I mean, he scored 12 goals in 51 games. was on pace for, how many is that across 82? I'm just going to do the quick math here. That is 19 goals across 82 games. Again, he probably wouldn't have got there because he was, you know, riding a bit of a high shooting percentage. But when you're on pace to score 19 goals and you get that kind of money, I, I don't... Brandon Peary! Basically signed for the league minimum. He signed for what, like seven hundred thousand, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars? Yeah, I think it's seven seventy five for two years. That'll never make sense to me. Brandon Perry scores at a at a first line rate. Yeah. Per game, I'm not even making that up. He's top ninety in the NHL in, in goals per game over the last like four years. Yet he can't even find himself in a lineup. Like, it just blows my mind. I'm wondering if there's some stuff going on behind the scenes. I know he's not the greatest defensive player and you need to shelter him, but, like, you need to, you probably need to shelter JVR, and he's a very good offensive player. So, but, but Brandon Perry is a league minimum guy. I, I... You know what's weird is, like, the Leafs signed Kenny Augustino at one year 700,000, right? Why wouldn't you have just retained Tyler Ennis at one year 800,000? You already know what you're getting. You know what I mean? Is it maybe you didn't want to come back? Or? Well, you can save $100,000. I don't know. How valuable is $100,000 in a salary cap world? Yeah, but do we not think that Tyler Ennis probably provides more value? I really like Kenny Augustino. <laughs> okay. Okay. He scored at a third-line rate last year, and he drove play much better than Tyler Ennis did. All right, fair enough. I guess we'll see the season, provided Mike Babcock plays him. I was going to say, when Kenny Augustino's out of the league and Tyler Ennis scores 15 goals, I'm going to look like an idiot. But Well, Tyler Ennis is probably going to play in the top six in Ottawa, along with Connor Brown. Before we spend 10 more minutes talking about Tyler Ennis, uh, any other guys you wanted to talk about? Because I feel like we could just go on for hours about these like one-year deal guys who we thought were smart pickups and these four-year deal guys we thought were bad signings. But is there anything else interesting we could get into? As 
president of the Marcus Johansson fan club. I'm kind of interested to see what happens there because it's, I mean, it's a couple days after kind of free agency opened, hasn't signed yet. He was darn terrific in the playoffs for Boston. Um, You could make the argument that he was a big reason why he, the Bruins got to where they did. Um, I mean, he's had some injury trouble the past couple seasons, but one of them, ironically, was Brad Marchand elbowing him in the head. And so it's kind of just one of those things. Where do you think he ends up? I'm not sure if I have a good guess at this point. And there are some really interesting free agents who haven't been signed yet with injury issues. I'm thinking Jake Gardner is the big one. Had had the back injury that really derailed him later in the season, and he clearly wasn't himself in the playoffs. How much would you be willing to pay a player like that? And I think the big question is term, because... Yeah, I'd give a guy a one-year prove-it deal, kind of like I would with a Wayne Simmons, where it's That's, like, yeah. okay, if I know that the injury is really bad, okay, it's just one year and I can get out from under it. I'm not sure if I feel comfortable giving Gardner, you know, five, six years a term if, if he's not going to be the same player. Oh, God, no. I would say with Gardner, I'd probably go max two years, but probably a one-year, like, prove-it deal kind of thing, which is why I really could see him going back to Toronto, because he knows what the medical staff's like there. He kind of knows what he's getting from everything that the insiders have been saying he wants to be there so I could see him doing like a one-year prove-it deal with Toronto but if I'm any other team I mean I'm not handing out a term deal four or five years if I have no idea about this guy's back like that's not a good idea and Michael Furlan got hurt in the playoffs too and he was a pretty sought-after commodity at the deadline kind of wondering sort of what goes on there but if you notice, the three players we brought up all have had their fair share of injury issues. And that's what it comes down to. It's a risk assessment thing. And it's funny, teams are, are, are fine taking risks on players because of age, but they're not fine because of injury. Personally, I'd argue that the two should be much closer in terms of risk, because I think as you get up there in age, their chances of getting one of these kinds of injuries increases dramatically. But you're right. When you're looking at a gardener, he didn't get signed on July 1st to the kind of money and term he was expecting. And I think that's been out there in the the rumors that he didn't get anywhere near the kind of term on the open market that he was expecting to get. I'm not sure if three or four years of term was like the most he was expected to get. Maybe five years of term on a really cheap deal. And he felt that he could have got more than that. Again, I don't know. I'm not an insider. I'm just going based on what I've heard. But maybe it does kind of make sense for these kind of guys to sign the Wayne Simmons contract, the one mil, the one year, you know, $4 million, $5 million contract. I'm going to prove it and earn myself a long-term deal next year. Yeah, bet on yourself. Which team has the, the cap space to take a player like that? Because you don't want to commit term to them, but if you have lots of cap space right now, maybe you do it. If you're a Colorado, if you're a Vancouver who has lots of cap space for the next year or two, Maybe that's the best way to use your cap space. If I'm Vancouver and based on who I've signed, Jake Gardner's got to be a big target for me because apart from Quinn Hughes, there's not a whole lot of puck moving on the back end. I feel like you could give Jake Gardner two years in Vancouver. Yep. And you wouldn't feel terrible about it because that's when Pedersen and Hughes are due for their, their extension. So you get out from Gardner's contract at the right time. But again, I think maybe he's, for him, the best situation at this point might be a one-year deal to rehabilitate his value. So, I don't know. I mean, Derek Broussard's another weird one who he kind of fell off a cliff the last couple years. Is he even going to get a contract at this point? Ooh, I don't know. I mean, I would say maybe a PTO type of deal. That could be interesting. 
are there any fits that you see around the league? It's it's always tough. It's like, well, you know, everyone could use a center, but is Derek Broussard going to be your fourth line center, or do you see him as the third line center? Because I feel like uh, I could see him in Montreal. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's funny we're talking about all these low risk signings. Montreal has tons of cap space that they're trying to pretend to use. <laughs> they're attempting. Maybe they should actually use it. It's funny. Their right side defense is actually pretty great. Their left side defense is a catastrophe. <laughs> it's really not good. Jake Gardner in a one-year deal would make so much sense in Montreal, but I'm not sure if either party would be interested. Oh, well, if I'm the Habs, I should. I better be interested. Um, they're they're going to be too busy offer-sheeting Braden Point a $7 million contract. Man, if I'm Montreal, like, Braden Point's not signed. Why don't you offer him ten and a half million dollars would he he's automatically your first line center no Uh, offer sheets don't actually exist it's just it's the way the nhl works but uh, from what i heard i i'm not sure if it was bob mckenzie or chris johnston or someone who put it out but it didn't sound like Braden point was interested in signing an offer sheet it sounded like he wanted to stay in tampa bay in a winning situation of course might be willing to take less because shocker everyone in tampa bay is willing to take less but everyone in every other city is not willing to take less i'm not sure (sighs) Not sure what's in the water over there. Uh, first of all, the fact that there is water over there, by I mean the ocean, and it's warm. That's a fair point. That's, yeah. I, I mean, there, I, there, there, there's water in, in Florida, but Sergei Bobrovsky signed for $10 million in seven years. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what is going on there. But I don't, if you gave me an option, Rachel, you can go and live in... A snow-filled, cold city for six months of the year, or five months of the year, whatever it is. Or you can go live in Tampa where it's sunny all the way around and tax-free state. I'm probably going with Tampa. I feel like winning matters way more than any of this at the end of the day. Well, and they're good. (laughs) Yeah. That's the whole thing. That's the point. It's like, if you're not a good team... No one cares about the weather or how great your city is. So It's kind of like a cherry on top, you know what I mean? Like, oh, they're a winning team, so I want to go there. Also, there's no tax, which is about an 8% difference. Oh, also, it's like 25 to 30 degrees the whole year. Then again, everyone wanted to be a Ranger, despite the fact that they were really bad over the last few years. Jacob Trubas wanted to go there forever. Adam Fox wanted to go there forever. Timmy Panarin was willing to go there. I would say this, after having lived in that area for a year... You didn't actually live in that area. You lived in New Jersey. I was one subway stop from (laughs) World Trade Center, so I feel like that counts. That's what everyone from New Jersey says. Um, (laughs) It's New York. Like, it's one of those things. And yes, I lived in Hoboken, but when you go to Manhattan, it's, it's just different. Like, it's a different feeling. And people say, oh, like... First of all, I'll say this. Don't be shocked if P.K. Subban decides to live in Manhattan because... That city has a guy like P.K. Subban written all over it. There's so much happening there. There's so much to do. There's something for everyone. There's different neighborhoods. So if you're Panarin, you can be comfortable in whatever kind of neighborhood he wants to live in. There's, you can live in Brooklyn if you want. There's Chelsea. Like it's just, There's so much going on in New York. It's just, it's different. Like It's just a totally different animal. And LA's kind of got that vibe, but there's obviously no winter there. Um, and you're kind of worrying about some other stuff in terms of like natural fires and things like that. Whereas in well, New York. I thought York, you were going to say like earthquakes and stuff. Oh, there's earthquakes too. But New York is, I mean, 
It's New York. Am I biased for thinking Toronto should be in the consideration here for one of the top cities in the world? No, you shouldn't, but our transit system is hot garbage. So um, I would say like LA, Chicago, New York, Toronto, very, um, those are your big, big cities. And I just think that I don't blame Panarin for wanting to go play for the Rangers. One, they're an original six, so there's a lot of history there. And two, you can clearly tell that they've turned around. And three, there's just something super appealing about New York. And the one thing that's different about New York than Toronto is the Rangers aren't first in New York. The Yankees are, right? Whereas to if you come to Toronto, the Leafs are first. Like, you can't swing a damn cat without hitting a newspaper that has the Leafs in it. I have a question. I have a question. Kawhi Leonard resigns with Toronto. Are the Leafs first next year? Oh, yes. They are not first in the country. They are first in Toronto still. They will still lead every sports center. Stephen A. Smith hit the nail on the head. He goes, the Raptors are in the NBA Finals, and y'all are leading sports center with Bruins Blues. What are you doing? So hockey in this country is, I think basketball will eventually pass it just because it's significantly better marketed. But the thing about New York is even if Panarin wants to, he wants to be the star, but he doesn't want to be followed around or have that much attention, that attention gets devoted to the Yankees in New York, right? Because they're, let's face it, one of the biggest global teams on earth. They're like Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich territory. The LA Lakers, yeah, that's, yeah. It's, is hockey global? Yes. Do I see Leaf hats when I'm in Germany? Absolutely. I can tell you one thing, though, I see a lot more Yankees hats. So you could still, there's a difference between I'm the premier guy on my team versus I'm the premier guy on the premier team in my city. Maybe it's because I never saw the Rangers when they were a phenomenal team who was winning the Stanley Cup in the 90s when Mark Messier was there. It's just, I've never seen them as like this, you know, huge NHL, incredible hockey market. It's funny, like I've seen Detroit as hockey town. I've seen some other great hockey cities, whether it's Montreal when they were really good or I, I don't know. I just maybe it's it's because of my experiences and I never saw the Rangers and think of them as a hockey town. But uh, all these players want to go there. And I guess uh, it's, it's just the bright lights in New York City. But I, I feel like we don't we don't see the same thing in L.A. But there's also like a hometown thing. You know what I mean? I mean, obviously, it doesn't apply to Panarin because he'd be playing in the KHL. But you kind of saw it a bit with Spezza. He signed with Toronto. He's Toro- Well, he's a Brampton boy. I don't know how many big-time offers he was getting, to be fair. That's fair. But like in terms of playing at home, I'm sure Austin Matthews probably has an inkling that he wants to play in Arizona at some point. And who could blame him, right? I mean, that's why you might want to sign him to more than a five-year deal. But, uh... <laughs> yes. But you know what I'm saying in terms of... The- there is something about playing at home. Wherever home is. If home is Florida... Go play in Florida. If I believe Tyler Myers is from BC, is he not? That's why he took the hometown discount. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that one. All right, should we get out of here? I don't know. Is there is there anything else that we can get out of here on? Um, I feel like that's the way to go out. That's Yeah, that's a way to go out. Let's see how Brock Besser, less or more than Tyler Myers, does he get? Uh, I guess it depends on the term, right? If they bridge him, it'll be less. If they go six plus years, you, you got to imagine it'll be more, but much more. So, Okay, so what do you think the contract is? Do you think they bridge him or do you think they go higher? 
I would go high if I were you. Yeah, I think you might as well, right? Because if anything, if, if you bridge them, and then in a couple of years, you're going to be paying Pedersen north of $10 million, probably going to be paying Quinn Hughes. North of $10 million. Well, I was going to say, I don't know how well he does in the next couple of years. Let's, let, let's, let's be conservative and say $7 million for Quinn Hughes, $10 million for Pedersen. And now Brock Besser has a couple of huge years after playing on the power play of Pedersen. Now you got to pay Brock Besser. The cap's gone up. Maybe you got to pay Brock Besser close to like, you know, $9 million. I don't, maybe get him locked down now while you still can before he explodes point-wise. He's 22 years old. That's probably the smart thing to do. So someone asked me today just quickly, like, if Elias Pedersen was an RFA right now and you're Vancouver, you're another team, how much would you pay him? Would, you, would it be north of 10? I think I might need to go to the, the four first-round picks compensation tier, and I, I reserve that for a very, you know, few names, but how many players are going to be worth more on a multi-year deal right now than, than uh, Elias Pettersson. So basically, for the next five years, or for the next eight years, how many names do you get to before you get to Elias Pettersson? Probably not more than... Definitely not more than 15. Probably not more than 10. I'm not even sure if it's 10. I want to do it right now. So top 10 assets in the NHL for the next, let's say, eight years. Okay, number one. McDavid. Yep. Who do you have two? McKinnon? Age? It's it's tough because it can't be Crosby because you're right. not going to get it on the back end of that. Austin Matthews, I feel like, is a good bet. Yep. Is Jack Eichel a good bet at this point? Mm, nope. I'd still have Elias over him right now. Okay. This is actually a really fun exercise. Okay, hold on. Yeah, we're going to end on this because this is fun. I, I did not plan this at all, so now I actually want to think about it. Uh, it's too early to tell for guy, like a guy like Jack Hughes. That's what I mean. It's like you kind of want to go for an upside guy like that, right? Like, uh, I think Nathan McKinnon's ahead of him in terms of his value over the next five years for sure. Especially with certainty. You know what he's going to be for the next couple of years, like a top five player in the world. What about a guy like either Kucherov, a Braden Point? Ooh. That's like he's in the same neighborhood, right? Ooh. I think Pedersen is higher upside than Braden Point, but the certainty that Braden Point's going to be a first-line center for the next year, it's kind of like Sebastian Ajo. Sebastian Ajo, you're more certain than you are with, with Elias Pedersen, what he is and what he's going to be, but... I would probably still take Elias. <laughs> Pedersen, there's that crazy, ridiculous upside that you love because he's so young. I just think with Braden Point, like, the guy got 40 goals, that's... <laughs> Pretty difficult to... But he was playing with Kucherov and Stamkos and Hedman, and it's a bit easier to do that than when you're playing with Josh Levo. Would you take any defenseman over Pedersen? I, I might have Haskinen at some point, just because of the value that a defenseman brings. If Haskinen were right-handed, I might think about it. Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll take Darlene. I'll take Darlene. Yeah, Rasmus Darlene. <laughs> I felt like that. He's going to be insanely valuable. Would you take, like, a John Gibson? I don't know how old he is. It's, goalies like, don't count. Go, we're not doing goalies. Oh, go, goalies are... Because we have right. seen that even people in the NHL can't even value goalies because he only got one Vesna vote. Oh, so, but you, so you might pick John Gibson. Right? Um, not over Elias, no. It's 25. It's 25. Um, whew, this is... I, I want to do, like, my, like, like an, a podcast dedicated to this topic because I think it's an interesting one. Would you take Drysidle over him? I wouldn't. Not I, like, I, I, I really like Drysaddle, but I, oh, I me wouldn't. too. He's a German. Well, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> would you take any? How many wingers would you take over him? Would you take any? Kucherov, Kucherov. I think I would. Yeah, I, would. I was gonna say Kucherov, but only for a few years because he, he's getting older. Uh, what about Miko Rantanen? No, no, I don't think Miko Rantanen's as good as his point 
Not I don't either. Too. I want yeah. He is significantly better with McKinnon than without. Hey, I mean he's a hell he's a first line winger who produces at an elite rate. Like that's something you want. But I don't think he drives success at the team level the way that a superstar player does. Would you take Panarin over Pedersen right now? I'd take a younger version of Panarin, but I wouldn't take Panarin <laughs> at age. If I could get Panarin the second he came into the NHL and I knew he was going to give me those next few years, I would. Yeah. But I would, Panarin, who turns 28 this year, I wouldn't. So That's the thing. This is what I mean. When a player is 21 years old, you know that the next seven, eight years of their career are going to be ridiculous, and they're going to get even better in the next two, three, four years. So you should be paying for that upside. Whereas players who are on the wrong side of their prime, you know, 27, 28. What about Pasternak? No, no. No, okay. I, and I, I love Pasternak, but no, he doesn't even, I don't even consider him. No, I don't think he's... I'm just trying to think of wingers. And I, I think Pedersen actually potentially ends up as a center. All right, you ready? You ready for this? Capo Caco. Ooh! I know you love him. But same with Jack Hughes. Like, it's too early to tell, right? Is it? I will say this. I think Caco <laughs> has a better year than Hughes does. One, he's got more to work with with the Rangers. I think he wins Rookie of the Year, yeah. Yeah. Um... Uh, Kel, Kel McCarr has an outside chance, but then again, we know that defense would never win that award. Right. I just don't think that Hughes will get the opportunity to play with Taylor Hall just because him and he sure have so much chemistry together that, like, I don't see Hines breaking that up. All right. So in conclusion, in conclusion, our list is McDavid. McKinnon. McKinnon. Kucherov. Okay. We're putting Kucherov in there? He's on the bubble. All right. In, in, in no order. In no order. As long as and we're ahead of him. Darlene. Matthews. Matthews. I put Eichel ahead. You don't? Nope. I, I think I might have seen too much of Eichel play. Oh, like you've, you've, you've like... I think I'm, I might be over-criticizing his game. Seeing all the flaws in his game to the point where you're overly critical? Yeah. I yeah. feel like that happens with, like, you know, first overall picks. Alexi Lafreniere is going to have that issue this year. Yeah. And with that, because we still have a damn trade podcast to do, I think, uh... That'll do it for this episode. What do you think? I think I'm going to think a lot more about this after we end the podcast, and I'm going to I'm going to be really upset that I didn't name four or five guys. So, and we're going to have people yelling at us on Twitter. Can't wait. How could you not mention this superstar on my team? It's like it's because I hate you and your family personally. <laughs> yeah, just throwing that out there. It's true. So, alrighty, we've we've all been thinking it. Now you know. Yes, same like Dom hates your team. We will uh, we'll be back next week with the trade version of this podcast. Should we tease a couple trades that we're going to talk about? Should we tease a couple trades that are going to happen soon? Let's, so, uh, where's Cody CC going? <laughs> <laughs> we already talked about PK, but we're definitely going to talk about Tyson Berry getting moved. Um, probably a few more, but yeah, that's, that was a pretty big one. So we'll break it all down. And until then I'll let, uh, I'll let Ian run us out. Uh, Kawhi is going to stay in Toronto, sign a one plus one with the team, stay for one year, run it back, get to another finals, maybe even win, and uh, then sign with LA the year after. But uh, one more year in Toronto. It's happening. Love it. All right. Talk next week, everyone. Hashtag he stay. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.